So this, this morning is, um, represents a little bit of foot dragging on my part, trying to get into, well, maybe I'll put it this way. As I, as I thought about, I had an idea um, about a lesson in idolatry that kind of came together around a certain anyway, kind of focused point, and um, that ended up becoming a Toastmaster speech. And what came out of that was some other things that I wanted to develop in Education Hour. And there's just a lot there for me to not only understand, but a lot there to organize and try to figure out how to, to get across. And so this, this morning's message, the second of two, last week we talked about, mostly about idolatry in the ancient Near East, kind of before the Roman times, before the Greek times, um, and so on. And I will, I will review that just a tiny bit this morning. And then look at idolatry really in the New Covenant times uh, and in the New Testament times, so the early church, really, and, and just kind of quickly to move down to 8600. And the reason I want to do that is because of this. The Christian church, at its inception, and, you know, say, 8030 and 8040, 8050, and finally 8060 and 64, that kind of window of time is a tiny group of people. It's not an enormous group of people. It's not like it's, it is spreading. We read the, you know, we can read the book of Acts and see the church spreading and building. As far as the empire wide and the, the mass of people in the empire in different places, not a very significant movement in these early years. And finally it becomes outlawed. Uh, it's officially outlawed specifically, as far as I know, the only religious group to be outlawed in this way by the Roman, um, uh, by the Roman emperor and therefore the whole Roman empire. And so from AD 64 to AD 313, so 250 years, the Christian church is illegal in the Roman Empire. It's illegal to be a Christian. And then, and of course, what, this is what I want to get to this morning, help you understand. The Christian church is growing and taking these steps, and especially later on, um, bigger and bigger steps in, in, in its population and the number of Christians, and eventually, Rome is Christian. And that's amazing because Rome is deeply deeply traditionally not Christian in a lot of ways. Deeply, I've just built in idolatrous worship, not only from the Roman standpoint, which is kind of what I'm going to focus on this morning, but all around the church. We really don't have any idea. We think of the ancient gods as a joke. They're just a punchline, right? No one believes in Zarathustra. No one believes in Zeus. No one believes in Jupiter uh, or, you know, you name it, right? They're just these names that seem like little jokes out there. And what I hope to get across to you this morning is those, what we take to be little jokes, were real enemies surrounding the church that the church, by God's grace, over the course of six centuries, toppled, made disappear, erased from the earth, this idolatrous worship, in six centuries. And we, sitting on this side, that just take it all for granted. Of course there aren't temples to whoever, just name it. And, and the pantheon is extensive. Uh, you can't get them all. But, the, you know, for a Christian to walk the church was to walk by temple after temple after temple after temple in the cities, especially in the cities. And that's something I think I'd like to try to help get across as we're thinking about the nature of idolatry and what Christianity brings to the world and how it changes the world, not just individuals, certainly that, but as those individuals come to serve Christ then that changes what they do. And what they do then changes the world. So that's kind of what I want to get across, excuse me, this morning. Um, and maybe the first step in doing that is to remember a phrase from Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor is a Canadian um, uh, 
scholar who's looked at and particularly studied the Enlightenment and the effects of the Enlightenment uh, upon the modern world. And I can't remember the phraseology he has, but he talks about the pre-modern world as a world that is, that is enchanted. It's an enchanted world. Everybody, everybody, but, but a very, 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 very small minority of people believe that this is a spiritual world, the spiritual forces, the gods are at play, demons and, and devils and spirits and angels, and it's all built into the world. Nobody doubts it. Right? It's, it's, it's a supernaturally enthused world. Nobody doubts it. Christianity comes along with a message I'll mention in a minute. says, well, all that's not untrue, but there's behind all of it, there's one God and one absolute God. And that's a, that's a weird sales pitch in the midst of people who just know there are all kinds of gods and do all kinds of things, and there's just one? Why would you limit to that? You know, that's the kind of the immediate thing we have. Uh, it's, it's the opposite problem we have now. You're talking to somebody who says, there's one God. Say, one's too many. <laughs> one's too many. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, one's way too few. Um, for what we're thinking about. So, um, there's, what, again, this kind of atheistic scholar talks about the enchanted world, the pre-modern world, and then in our world, he says, it's a, it's a disenchanted world. We don't believe in spiritual forces really at all in the modern world. That's all nature. That's all normal nature. And, and then if, if there's anything about, you know, demonic or angelic or supernatural forces, that's basically seen as superstition. There's foolishness, there's childishness, and so on. Um, but if you're going to understand the ancient world, which is to say, Christian, if you're going to understand your Bible, you have to at least see through and get past the amazing, the, the, the ways our minds are shaped just in the water we drink from our mother's milk. Right? That's, and, and so lessons like this maybe help kind of break off some of the of the rust and help us see the world and I think a more holistic or fulsome sort of way that it really is. Uh, it is a supernatural work. God makes this thing go all the time. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the grass grows. Right? And, and that's, that's classic, classic Christian orthodoxy. All the way back. The only energy that we have is the energy from God. He's the one who made all this. So the natural really is quite supernatural. And this kind of boundary we have of nature and then supernature kind of isn't something we see. It's, it's, all, it's all stuck together. And, uh, and you can see if anyone's ever read any of the, you know, the Roman or Greek myths, uh, or even something like um, Homer and Virgil, as you get to, uh, the interactions between the supernatural and the natural are occurring all the time. It's all kind of around us. And, and sometimes maybe we have eyes to see it, other times we don't. Sometimes it just works its way into stories or into jokes and things like that. But anyway, that's, it's a world where it's expected that supernatural forces and human forces and decisions are, are kind of put together in a way you can't take them apart. Where I think in our minds they're almost taken apart in a way you can't put them together. Uh, so that's just that's like a first step in trying to think through what we're going to be talking about here. Um, I won't pause for questions, but I will after this first point here as a real quick review. Um, we talked last week about the nature of idolatry, particular idolatry, as worshiping images. Now, images either of false god, which were often, you know, life-size images, uh, carved images of, of the god, um, or sometimes much, much bigger, depending on the, the temple, what's going on, what you're doing uh, with them. But uh, and this, this in the ancient Near East in particular, like, uh, well, just think of more or less Old Testament times, and for the most part, uh, half of intertestamental times, until the Greeks come, and then the Romans come, and it's, it's a changed 
know, it's a changed situation, but not changed in the sense of, like, less idolatry. <laughs> changed probably in the sense of more idolatry when it comes to the Roman and the Greek world. Most temples in the ancient world, particularly in the ancient Near East, but I think it runs all the way through, temples are places not where you'd go to have a congregational meeting. Right? You, you don't congregate in a temple. The reason you go to a temple is because the God's there, their image is there, and if the image is there, that means the presence of the God is there. And if you want to worship that God by way of sacrifice, uh, maybe trying to get the God to give you something, or, or just simply to worship the God, or come and give votive, uh, which, you know, things that you have prayed about or asked from the God, and then you want to repay, and that kind of thing, that's what you do at a temple. You go there and you would make sacrifices and, and give offerings. Uh, it's not made for a communal gathering, as opposed to, for example, the temple in Jerusalem which is a, a peculiar temple in antiquity in, in the ancient times, because it was a gathering place, particularly the second temple. And, you, know, we, you can maybe open your Bibles and find a picture or whatever, you know, a sketch of, of what the temple area looked like, and you have this huge you know, court. And it, there's, there's a lot of people that can get into that for festivals. And, of course, at the center of it is the Holy Holies, the altar and sacrifices and are, are all there, right? And, and offerings are there just like the other gods would have. But it's also a gathering spot. And then, of course, Judaism has their gathering spots locally. Um, we call synagogues, which just means gather together. That's what the word means. Uh, so, um, anyway, that's the, you kind of a look at the, the, the Jewish tradition as it comes up into the time of Christ. It does focus in on the corporate aspect of worship, the gathering of the people together, in addition to, and maybe wrapped around, I mean, physically wrapped around, too, um, the, uh, the sacrifices and, and offerings. Um, Anyway, that's my attempt to summarize last week. Any, any questions or thoughts just on that before we move into the kind of Greek-Roman stuff that is immediately pertinent to the New Testament? Yes, sir. So there must have been a lot of, uh, and even today, unhappy speculators, I call them that, that worship all these wood and stone and animals and whatnot that do nothing, that give them nothing, how they have a, a semi-faith, or whatever you call it, in those kind of things, not to mention the graft that went along with it, that even today, probably today too, in the Roman uh, uh, Catholicism, you know, money, money involved in all that kind of stuff. Oh, you bet. But all those people that have, no, that have no faith, or that have, do not have saving faith in the one God, must have been a lot of unhappy. <laughs> well, did he answer your prayer or whatever you call it? Sure, right. Well, that's it. So, I mean, uh, that's interesting to think of, you know, if you're praying to a non-God to give you something that God could give you, um, you're bound to be disappointed. But at the same time, God gives gifts. And at the same time, under that, it's not just, it's not just that. One reality is that the idols are just wood. Right? You cook your dinner with this half, you whittle that half. Um, but that there are spiritual powers behind that, that there are real dark spiritual powers behind that false worship is true. Right? We want to say that's nothing. It's not nothing. It's something. It's something is worship of demons. And demons have power. Put it down. Demons have power. Right? Uh, even if they're defanged in Christ, even if, uh, even if Satan's bound, they shouldn't deceive the nations. Suppose that's the case. There's still demonic power, and that's behind this false worship. And Christ comes in like the light of the world saying, let's put that out. Right? And that's what goes on, which is what I'm hoping to get to. Um, let, me, let me start with, um, hopefully something that most of you are somewhat familiar with, with these ancient classic epics, poems, like from, from Homer. 
he's the Greek writer, and then from Virgil, who's the Roman writer quite a bit later. Um, and if anybody kind of familiar with them, kind of read those poems a little bit, or I know some of you just even even smaller versions of them, just to kind of like get the sense of the story of the fall of Troy. So Homer's Iliad is the fall of Troy. And then his Odyssey is the escape of Odysseus, or Ulysses, from Troy, and then his wanderings, um, and finally landing um, and, and, and um, founding Rome. Right? So that's, that's, those are the two kind of epic, you know, huge poems from Homer. And then Virgil comes along, and he has the story of Aeneas, similar to Odysseus, and, uh, but it's a Roman version, written in Latin, where Homer is Greek, written for the Greeks earlier. Now, the reason I bring them up is because you should read them, and we should read them together, and they're very worth your time. One thing in them that's obvious is how important in the poetry that is in the presentation from Homer, and particularly Virgil for the Romans, religious rites are. How important it is to honor the gods, to make the right sacrifices, to stop what you're doing when you get to a new, you know, to to make your prayers, to do everything just right, because you don't want to make the gods mad. And if you worship them wrongly or forget to worship them, they will be mad, and you're going to suffer for it. Right? And, and Virgil in particular at the time saying, we got this thing kind of breaking down. The religious structure of, of the Roman Empire is, is falling apart, and things are always falling apart like that anyway. But uh, So Virgil's writing in particular because he wants the Romans to be more religious. He wants them to come back to their ancestral gods and the, and the, and the traditional forms of worship because that's how Rome became great. Okay? So, that's, that's the world, you say, oh, good, that's just literature. But it's the world of the time, right? That's, and that's the important thing. We, we kind of think of history too often as like this fanciful thing that just kind of somebody made up. Well, someone did make it up, God did. And it's crazier than any human can make up. Right? The reality of things is usually stranger than what people could concoct, because God's concocting it. Okay, so religious and cultic commitments run deep. The word cult, or cultic, cult really has to do with worship. Now we talk about the cults, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. That's a kind of particular use of the word. A Christian cult, we call them. That is to say, a group of people who worship outside the bounds of the Christian church, usually based upon Trinitarian heresy or Christological heresy. Okay, that's what we talk about, the cults. So, you know, that's, that's what we mean. Like, groups that have spun out of Christianity, usually holding on to some heretical teaching around the Trinity or around the Incarnation. Okay, so Christian cults there. When we talk about cult or cultic, generally we mean those things having to do with ritualistic worship. Right? What goes on in, in the liturgy and the worship? So the cult of Onysus, the cult of Mithrandia, there's all these cults, right? And they're... They're set up structured forms of worship about how you approach these various gods and what you do. So religious and cultic commitments, that is, the nature of religion, again, it's it's worth just saying, we think of religion as this compartmental thing. Yeah, you have a religion. Okay, you also have some politics. Okay, or a politics. Uh, you, you also have economics. You have your life, your family. And you have, religion is like a, just one of, the, one of the number of things that's kind of part of who you are. But religion is something that's far more integrated into all parts, and it really is. It is in our lives, too, though we might not talk about it or think about it that way. But our, our convictions about who God is and what this world is kind of works into, like, everything, right? Um, and that's the truth of it, and I think, more in the ancient world as well, where religious duties are seen as not just individual expressions of piety or devotion, 
Right? That's, that's partially it. That's something very important um, in a modern church. Individual piety, individual uh, worship of God. In the ancient world, particularly in the Roman world, it's, it's a communal reality. You're part of what's going on here. You've got to do your part, and uh, we've got to do our part together for the gods. And if we don't, they're going to take it out on us, and we're going to suffer for it. So there's this community reality around religious and cultic life that is hard for us, especially as, I think, fundamentalists. Anyway, 21st century, we, we tend to see things as... Um, we, we don't get that communal aspect of it very easily. Or if we do, we just get it at a thin level. We don't really sense the fullness of it uh, that these people, I think, would have been living in and operating in. Um, questions? Yeah. Seems, uh, thinking of it in the way you're talking about it makes the fear of God, you know, how we, in the modern world, we tend to think God is all love and puppy dogs and stuff. Whereas in the world where that term meant more, people were doing those kind of sacrifices and stuff because they were scared of the gods or whoever was. Sure. Yeah, and, or, or trying to curry favor maybe, or whatever else. But yeah, there's, uh, there's a, there, yeah. It's, it wouldn't be impossible for an ancient person to say, the gods are angry with us, and they all nod their head and say, yep. <laughs> yeah. Where I think in the modern world, they say, no, God's love us. God loves us. Why, why would he not love me? I read it on the sign over here, it's love at first sight when he saw me. God's gushing over me, uh, that sort of thing. And the, and the truth of it is, in Christ Jesus, he is. He dances over us. He sings over us. But that's because of the mediation of Jesus Christ, not because we're the lovely, or God's just love and that's all there is to it, or something like that, right? The mediation's important. But yeah, I think getting the ancients to say God's angry, or the gods are angry, wouldn't have been a hard thing to like, get them to agree to. Or fear the one God. Yeah, or, yeah, right, right. Sir? I like in Jonah, how they thought he displeased the gods so that they're not the boat. Yeah, right. He gave them the option. Um, <laughs> yep. Absolutely right. So the things that break off oftentimes of strict religious thought are brought in in other ways. And so one way to think about this, especially as you kind of go through this ancient stuff right now in particular, how, how integrated it all is, how you don't get out, you're born into like layers of idolatrous realities. The same thing goes on for us. We just don't see them as idolatry. Oh, that's just whatever. That's a political idea or something like that. So, yeah, well, that's part of the idolatry, right? That's all part of this thing, right? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm currently reading a book from Pontius Pilate. Nice. And evidently, uh, according to the book anyway, he didn't buy into all the gods, but he, he went through all the motions. Oh, of course. Everybody so, so that's a great point, because politicians will do just the same thing today. Yeah. They'll pander to Christians, because they can, they can probably pander to Christians and win. It's probably like that, right? And it's always been like that, yeah. And, and so we, if we talk about the... Uh, if we talk about the there's always, I'm trying to think of the right word, sarcastic, cynical folks who will ride these religious exteriors because it helps. And it helps. And it helps to the ancient world probably more than it helps now, as far as, certainly like now. So, yeah, Christians, might maybe not, right, with the negative world kind of thing we got going right now, maybe that doesn't work. Uh, but for George W. Bush, it did. Remember his, like, election, I can't remember the guy who was running his election saying, we just focused on evangelicals and we won. I don't, and maybe that's still possible, but in um, any event, the, the religious aspect is brought into politics and power for sure, 
all the time, uh, and explicitly so, you know, um, in the ancient world. Let's look at number three. Okay, so traditional deities in Roman life. By Roman, I don't mean in the city of Rome. Uh, early on, to be a Roman citizen really meant that, that you were, you were from the city of Rome, born there, and so on. And, uh, later on, it, the Roman citizenship kind of opened up and opened up, finally opened up to everyone in the empire. Uh, if you're even within the imperial uh, stretches of Rome, you're a Roman citizen. But what I mean is just in the common life of the Roman people, whether in Rome or, or more in the provinces. And this actually probably applies a little more in the provinces because they're all trying to curry favor <laughs> with Rome, where... Um, if you're in Rome, you don't have to curry favor with Rome. You are, right? You're in the center of power. But the, the, the provinces out there are, are interested in Roman uh, money, basically money and power, and the cities kind of move that way. Okay, we'll see if we can make this make sense. So I put examples. What's the polis? What does that mean? Traditional deities of Roman life, for example, of the polis. What's that? Pope. Not the Pope. It's a polis. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess we got, the, we got the, it means city, right? Uh, Indianapolis, right? Minneapolis, the polis at the end is, means city. Uh, it's, a, it's a Latin word. And if you're part of a city, and, and remember Christianity is growing in cities. The, the targets of Christian mission work early on in Acts and beyond are the cities. You, you come into the city, the big city, and you go out from there, kind of is how Christianity, which, which is why the word pagan is used, because pagus meant town. The, the, the small podunk, you know, Scapus would definitely be a Pagus, right? Not a polis. Portland would be a polis, a city, right? So the Christians are in the cities, and it kind of starts to grow in the cities, and then it's those bumpkins out there that still hold the, the traditional gods, or the old gods, and the old worship. They're the pagans, right? So that's where that word comes, um, and how I'm using it here as well. But if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're born into and grow up in a city, you're automatically, and probably anywhere else too, but you're automatically tied into the gods of that city. Every city has patron god, or more, and sometimes they're ancient ones that that city's had for centuries. Sometimes they're kind of new and improved and gussied up in, in Greek or Roman style, which is all, almost always the case. We, we call it syncretism, where the, the old gods are kind of brought into line with the pantheon from Greece or the pantheon from Rome, and because... Again, we want, well, Greek and Roman, it's, it's difficult to overstate how important Greek culture is to this Mediterranean world and how important Roman power is to this Mediterranean world, and everyone wants to be like them. You want to be relevant? Then don't worry about the old gods. You gussy them up like these new Greek and Roman ones, or you just kind of associate this old god with um, an existing Greek or Roman god, and sometimes just call them by the same name and that kind of thing. Uh, that's why you get the you get Jupiter and Zeus sort of thing where so it's, it's not exactly the same Greek god and Roman god, but they're close enough, and you can just kind of use the same name and, and move them over and that, that sort of thing. And that goes all the way down the list of many, 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 many gods that are worshipped. Okay, so it goes from the polis, your own city, where you're, you know, you're, you're bound as a citizen of that city to some kind of re- religious rites around the patron god of that city. That's just what it is to be part of the city. And if you wanted to be in city leadership, you would absolutely have to, uh, you know, do basically worship the gods and oftentimes worship the emperor, right, uh, so that you could get into that higher level of politics. Castes, the, uh, the Roman world is stratified, right? Uh, there are different castes or classes of people. 
Um, and the rulers come from certain classes, and I'm trying to remember the, uh, the senatorial class is one, and the equestrian class is under it. They're, they're the aristocracy. Right? They're the, the ones with the power, the money, the holdings, the land, all that. And they're the ones to put on the festivals, too. Every city, and this, this happens plenty, where there's a festival. They bring out the god, and that's regalia. That is to say, the image of the god. And they parade it. One thing, you know, there are kind of two things in Roman cities in, in particular that are important. Streets in the Roman city, and some kind of amphitheater, or maybe the agora, which would be like the marketplace or an open forum kind of, uh, where you can parade your image around the streets and finally get it to the agora or get it to the, an open spot where then you can make sacrifices and it's a day of worship. It's a festival day. And all that costs money. And it's the, it's the, the, the senatorial class and the equestrian class in this Roman stratified society that's paying for all this. And, and oftentimes money and food are, getting, are, are given to uh, the citizens of the city. It's a holiday. It's a day to celebrate uh, you know, Isis or whoever, right? In any number of gods, the city god. Um, and you can think of uh, Paul in visiting Ephesus, and it doesn't take much before they got a riot on their hands. And Ephesus is particularly that because you have this enormous temple that's a, one of the great wonders of the world, and people are making bank on it. That's the economy, right? And Christianity comes and says, no, we need, we need to topple this. You can imagine it's going to ruffle some feathers. Right? That's, that's what's going to go on there. So, let's see if we can keep moving here. Um, and then families. There, there are not only kind of historic family gods. We, we've always worshipped so-and-so. Whenever we go here, we, we, we sacrifice to this god. And, and it will, when, when Auntie so-and-so was sick, we went and sacrificed and, and made offerings over here, and she got better. And we've always been connected to all of that kind of stuff. Nothing new there, right? I think all families kind of have that mess. But we're living in a world, in the ancient world here, in the ancient, in ancient Jerusalem even, especially moving beyond, um, that, uh, and, and especially beyond. But there are lots of options of, of ways to, uh, to be idolatrous. I mentioned these are broadly social. That is to say, you have social components in all of it. We like to think of worship as just private and individual, and to some degree that's true. But it's definitely seen as, as a broadly social reality, which I'll get to in a minute a little more. Uh, inclusive. Everyone's involved. You're a citizen. You're part of this, this Roman reality, this kind of Greco-Roman reality of the gods we worship and, and the, the, the gods we pay honor to and the gods we want to make sure uh, are not angry at us so we can have victory on the battlefield and good harvests and children and whatever else we're, we're looking for, right? Um, Upward moving, that's part, part of the issue here, particularly in the Roman society, is, again, it's these upper classes of Romans that are funding and kind of making these, these larger festivals and spectacles, and you kind of want to get in with that, right? And here, here's even a better one, guys. If we can get on the register, there's a Pan-Hellenian register of all the real Greek cities who have registered gods, registered worship, and they become like tourists. You know, they, not, they, so if they're on the list and they get... Imperial money, they get money from Rome to, to keep these things up. And, and in the time, right before the time of the apostles and Jesus, what begins and grows through this whole time we're talking about, the 600, is the imperial, that is, imperial means of the empire, right? Um, kind of grassroots coming up of emperor worship. We want to worship the emperor as God, right, or as a divinity or, or something along those lines. And that's a real issue for Christians, Right. Um, okay, so emperor worship begins with Augustus, 
Augustus Caesar is the one we get there in, uh, uh, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, um, as we read Luke. Right? So Augustus Caesar is, is, is the one who effectively, through the Senate, gets his uncle or his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, to be understood by the Romans officially as divine, right? as uh, Deus. Right? Not, so Deus is the word for God in Latin. Uh, there's another word for kind of divine-like or something moving that direction, not quite God. And that's the word we get, um, Deus, from... Uh, and Julius Caesar, then, is, is, is Deus, and therefore Augustus Caesar is Filius Dewi, the son of God. In Latin, right? And, and anyway, that's, that, that's the kind of stuff that's being perpetuated. Then all around the empire, particularly out there in the provinces, they want the attention of Caesar. They want the money of Caesar. So, hey, can we, can we make a temple to you? And he says, sure, so long as you also include Gaia, who's the mother goddess that's worshipped in Rome, because he wants to be tied into this Roman cult as well. And suddenly these, these temples pop up all over the world, all over the Roman world, to Caesar. Right? And these, they're able to pay some money and get connected. And there's this, you know, anyway. So you can kind of see the social, political, monetary stuff all built into just this one aspect of, of idolatrous worship, um, emperor worship. Right? But there, there, like I said, there are scores of layers of idolatry all around that. And even to cut through it clearly is hard. And that's the, that was the job of the Christian church in those, in those early centuries, is to figure out a way to cut through this, a way to be faithfully um, standing against it, and then God just topples the enemies. And, and that's, we'll figure out a little more later on how that goes, not today. Very quickly, number four, mystery cults. I don't have a lot to say about them. These, this, the, the term mystery cults is an academic term from the 19th century, like put on, on what we might call the non-traditional forms of worship and cults. They're, they're not the traditional Roman deities or the traditional deities of the cities. They're coming in from somewhere else, and then suddenly there's a, this new cult where they go. It's, it's one that's, you, you don't, you enter into all of that, for, what were we were just talking about, all, all the mess of the Roman system of idolatry, you enter in just by being born into it. That's part of what it is to be, well, either a Roman citizen or a slave um, in the Roman Empire, is you're just born into this stuff. It's all right there. With these, what we call mystery cults, they're more, they're elective. They're volitional. There's something you choose in addition to all the other stuff going on to, to participate in. Right? Um, so they're voluntary associations. They include various religious rites, uh, some of them uh, bloody and interesting that way, if you kind of look at them. Um, sacrifices, music and festivals, they're fun, right? They're, they're, they're some, of the, some of the ancient Roman you know, forms of, of religion and, and rites, Maybe they're kind of boring, and people are like, yeah, okay, again, maybe. Um, but with these ones, it's like, a little more exciting, and, and there's something more pop in there, and something you get to choose. And not everyone gets in, right? You, you, get to have to have, you have to be initiated into these things and things like that. So I don't know a whole lot about them. i give a few examples. The Cults of Mithras, um, who is one that comes from the East. I'm trying to remember, but don't... Uh, uh, Osiris is, is one that comes out of Egypt, a god of Egypt that's being kind of exported around and is worshipped in these various ways. Dionysius or Bacchus is famous, uh, particularly in the use of alcohol and other things to kind of stimulate um, religious experience and, and so on. So anyway, these, these are these are available widely available in the New Testament times. So I don't know if you've thought like Christianity enters on the scene. It's like yeah, we have some enemies, the Jews. 
And then maybe, maybe if you thought about it, we have some enemies in Rome. It's like, yeah, they don't really like Christians. But beyond that, we don't know. You have to understand that Christianity is this fledgling little thing entirely surrounded, entirely outgunned, entirely outnumbered in all sorts of ways. Okay? That's, that's the nature of early Christianity. And after a handful of centuries, it's the last one standing. Right? It's, it's the one standing. There's still Jews. There's still, you know, there's still certain groups of people that kind of worship and do their own thing, Jews preeminently, um, through the Middle Ages and so on, out of, the, out of antiquity. But all, all these other ones are, are either destroyed or brought into service of Christianity. Um, and that's, that's interesting. Let me read this number five, this quote here from uh, Dr. Harl. How did the traditional... Society come to embrace a very, very different view of the divine. Let me give a mention of that. The traditional society, what he means by that, are these long-standing, powerful, powerfully connected, idolatrous forms of worship and society that are just there, and they've been there for a long time. Okay, uh, longer than yeah, and more connected than we would often think. And of course, polytheistic all the way around. Many gods doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And here comes Christianity saying, "Hang on, hang on, hang on." One absolute God. One set of dogmas. Right? The one institution, the church, and so on, and everyone's going, what are you talking about? That's what what the the professors talk about. How did a traditional society come to embrace a very, very different view of the divine? A Christian faith based on dogma, on texts, on a sense of morality and institutions that were universal from church to church, as opposed to pagan cults, which varied from one city to another, from one God to another. The Christians faced a very tough audience. Not only did they have to bring across a new vision of the relationship of the mundane and the divine, which is to say, one transcendent God who created all things, as opposed to maybe emanations of divinity that are all kind of mixed up. And, and you know, So the, the, the view that Christianity is bringing to the ancient world is enormously different than what was there on a theological level, on a daily living level, on an ethical level, right? The Christians come up and they're into sexual purity. They're into saving babies and not killing them. They're into burying bodies and not burning them. These are all Christian ethical realities that stand out like crazy in the ancient world. So hopefully that you're getting a sense of that. So the Christians faced a very tough audience. Not only did they have to bring across a new vision of the relationship of mundane and divine, but they also had to go against ancestral pagan rites and the beliefs that were immediately tied to social values, particularly in the cities of the Roman world. And in our time here this morning, I've just barely scratched the surface. Just barely scratched the surface of what the Christians were up against, what they're doing. Um, and so we see in that the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Overcoming all these. And the greatest of them to begin with is AD 70, right? where, where God says this corrupted temple and his corrupted worship he destroys and says my temple now is by my spirit and my people right that's an enormous move forward uh, for Christianity uh, and it's the first one that you know maybe over centuries as we get there many others come but that's the big and the, the first one let me try to wrap this up and I'll take a question or two so the rise of Christianity is number six now the rise of Christianity and destruction of pagan worship by 600 by 8600 so within these uh, well within these five full centuries Imperial Rome east and west are Christian numerically and culturally Constantine founded a, a second Roman capital where was that 
Sure, Constantinople. It was Byzantium before that, so it was a, it was a city before that. But he entirely redid it, redid the streets, redid the buildings, just built the city as a Christian city. The architecture and everything is Christian. So that's an example of what's going on in the Eastern Empire, but also in the Western Empire, uh, of the Christianization, not just of the people. The, numerically, you get more and more Christians, you bet. But then what they're doing, where, where, where the center of power goes, and of course, by the time Constantine comes around, uh, the center of power comes right into Christian hands, which has all its own problems, of course, but has an amazing effect of Christianizing the world. In other words, we go from a thoroughly pagan, idolatrous culture to a thoroughly Christianized culture in six centuries. That's something. And in fact, it's a major turning point in world history. Right? It, it, is, it is a hinge of history these, these early Christians are living through. And, um, and sometimes I get the problem, say, oh, cultures aren't Christian, businesses aren't Christian, whatever. People are Christian too. Okay, I get that. But people live and move and do things, and they either do them faithfully as Christians or not. And what we have, you know, from this, this kind of falling apart of the ancient world is not only the Middle Ages that are Christian, but what we call Christendom. <laughs> all the, the, the Christian society. Is, that, is it all Christian, top to bottom, with no problems? Never. But it's far better than, than now, <laughs> as, far as, as far as the influence and understanding of Christianity and what it means to society, what it means to people. It was the centerpiece of Christendom, of course. And in the modern world, or postmodern world, or post-postmodern world, or whatever we're in, um, it's, it's an afterthought. And it's an, it's an enemy of an afterthought, right? So, again, Christianity moves from being an extremely small minority and embattled to owning everything. In, in, in northern and western Europe, we call it Christendom. Temples that used to dominate were converted, torn down, recommissioned, and then there were angels in the architecture. Right, that's, that is the medieval vision that right? um, grows out of the destruction of this pagan culture. Within 550 years, Christianity went from being quite small, persecuted minority, surrounded, deeply, uh, surrounded by deeply entrenched idolatry, deeply entrenched idolatry, to standing virtually alone as a dominant liturgical and cultural force in the Roman Empire. And so that's, again, just kind of trying to give you a thumbnail of what we're up against, what it looked like, and then how it kind of panned out in the end. What I want to do as we move forward is take a look very closely at some scriptural passages and then kind of see how this works. See what Christianity brought out of Judaism, because it's certainly grabbing onto Judaism and the Second Commandment and, and uh, Isaiah 6 and so on. And, but, it's, but it's the power of the Spirit in the church that pushes this thing out and, and has this amazing cultural effect as it goes that Judaism never had. Never had, right? Had in these little limited ghettos and places. Uh, there's definitely Jewish influence and money and finances, to be sure, but there's not a cultural influence the way that Christianity comes to own it here in Christendom, which is an important, uh, but also a deceiving uh, part of, of Christian experience. So any, any questions as we close? All right, then let's close. <laughs>